You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Glad you can be along for the ride. Hope you enjoy the stories. Tonight, I want to look at some classic mysteries from the past. Netta Fornario. In the late summer of 1929, a woman about 30 years old, Netta Fornario, left London for Iona, a small Scottish island rich in folklore and history. She was not an ordinary woman of the times. She was a member of Alpha et Omega, a splinter group of the famous Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Alpha et Omega was rich in occult practices such as ritual magic, tarot cards, mysticism, and a solid belief in the powers of telepathy. And supposedly, Netta had a deep interest in fairies. What is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you might well ask? Well, it was an organization devoted to the study and practice of the occult, of metaphysics, and of paranormal activities during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Known as a magical order, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was active in Great Britain and focused its practices on theurgy and spiritual development. Many present-day concepts of ritual and magic that are at the center of contemporary traditions such as Wicca and Thelema were inspired by the Golden Dawn which became one of the largest single influences on 20th century Western occultism. It is not clear why Netta made this journey. She packed an extraordinarily large amount of luggage, clearly intending to stay in Iona for a while. Once on the island, Netta Fernario found lodgings with a local landlady named Mrs. McCray, who was in the habit of taking visitors under her roof. The two made a strange pair, the humble islander, and the occult practitioner, but some form of friendship developed between the two. Netta spent most of her days wandering the tiny island alone and spent her nights engaged in various supernatural practices. For many weeks, this arrangement went on without a problem, but something changed as the summer fell into autumn. The first indication that something was wrong was a cryptic message Netta sent to her London housekeeper. It stated that she would be out of communication for a while because she had, quote, a terrible case of healing, unquote, to work on. 
Netta's apparent distress escalated until the morning of November 17th, when McCray rose to find Netta in a frenzy of packing her luggage. She informed the landlady that she needed to return to London immediately as several individuals were attacking her telepathically. McCray was skeptical. She found nothing odd in Netta's appearance until she noticed that Netta's shiny silver jewelry had completely tarnished to black overnight. McCray told Netta it would be impossible to travel that day. The boat to the mainland didn't run on Sundays. Netta became enraged and retreated to her room. After several hours, she came back out and calmly announced to McCray that she had changed her mind and would be staying on at Iona. She then went out for one of her usual daily walks. McCray was used to Netta going off by herself, so she was not immediately alarmed when she didn't return that afternoon. When darkness came and Netta still hadn't returned, McCray raised the alarm. The night was far too cold and windy for anyone to be wandering the island. Even though Iona is a small island, it took two days to find Netta's body. The death site was unusual to be sure. A cross had been cut into the turf with a dagger, which was found lying nearby, and Netta's body was lying on top of it. All she had on was a thin black cloak. The doctor who examined the body could not narrow down the time of death, so he pronounced that she could have died at any time from the 17th to the 19th when her body was found. He apparently also had trouble determining a cause of death, so he covered all the bases and settled on either exposure to the elements or heart failure, neither of which could account for the mysterious deep scratches on Netta's body and on the bottoms of her feet. Was she running from something? This may indeed be a case of a young woman, ignorant of the deadly effects of high winds and freezing temperatures, becoming lost and confused during a dark night on an isolated Scottish island. Her fellow practitioners of the magical arts were convinced that Netta Fornario was killed by a psychic telepathic attack generated by someone many miles away. Have you ever heard the story of the Green Children of Woolpit? The legend of the Green Children of Woolpit concerns two children of unusual skin color, they were green, who reportedly appeared in the village of Woolpit in Suffolk, England, sometime in the 12th century, perhaps during the reign of King Stephen. The children, who were brother and sister, were of generally normal appearance except for the green color of their skin. They spoke in an unknown language and would only eat raw broad beans. Eventually, they learned to eat other food and lost their green pallor, but the boy was sickly and died soon after he and his sister were baptized. The village of Woolpit is in the county of Suffolk, East Anglia, about seven miles east of the town of Bury St. Edmunds. During the Middle Ages, it belonged to the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds and was part of one of the most densely populated areas in rural England. Two writers, Ralph of Coggeshall and William of Newburgh, reported on the sudden and unexplained arrival in the village of the two green children during one summer in the 12th century. Ralph was the abbot of a Cistercian monastery in Coggleshaw, about 26 miles south of Woolpit. William was a canon at the Augustinian Newburgh Priory, far to the north in Yorkshire. William states that the account given in his Historia Rerum Anglicarum, and I'm sorry if I screwed that up, 
is based on reports from a number of trustworthy sources. Ralph's account in his Chronicum Anglicum, written sometime during the 1220s, incorporates information from Sir Richard de Cone of Wykes, who reportedly gave the Green children refuge in his manor, six miles to the north of Woolpit. The accounts given by the two authors differ in some details. One day at harvest time, according to William of Newburgh, during the reign of King Stephen, the villagers of Woolpit discovered two children, a brother and sister, beside one of the wolf pits that gave the village its name. Their skin was green, they spoke an unknown language, and their clothing was unfamiliar. Ralph reports that the children were taken to the home of Richard de Cone. Ralph and William agreed that the pair refused all food for several days until they came across some raw broad beans which they consumed eagerly. The children gradually adapted to normal food and in time lost their green color. After learning to speak English, the girl explained that they came from a land where the sun never shone and the light was like twilight. William said the child called her home St. Martin's Land. Ralph adds that everything there was green. According to William, the children were unable to account for their arrival in Woolpit. They had been herding their father's cattle when they heard a loud noise, and according to William, this was the Bells of Bury St. Edmunds, and suddenly found themselves by the wolf pit where they were found. Ralph says that they had become lost when they followed the cattle into a cave, and after being guided by the sound of bells, eventually emerged into our land stories are not too different there so we're not going to argue that. According to Ralph, the girl was employed for many years as a servant in Richard de Conn's household where she was considered to be very wanton and impudent. William says that she eventually married a man from King's Lynn about 40 miles from Woolpit where she was still living shortly before he wrote his story. Based on his research into Richard de Conn's family history, the astronomer and writer Duncan Lunan has concluded that the girl was given the name Agnes and she married a royal official named Richard Barr. Neither Ralph of Coggeshall or William of Newburgh offer an explanation for the strange and prodigious event, as William calls it, and some modern historians have the same reticence. Nonetheless, such explanations continue to be sought, and two approaches have dominated the explanations of the mystery of the Green Children. The first is that the narrative descends from folklore, describing an imaginary encounter with the inhabitants of a fairy otherworld. Okay. In a few early as well as modern readings, this otherworld is extraterrestrial. You know they had to show up. And the Green Children were... Alien beings. The second is that it's a garbled account of a real event, although it is impossible to be certain whether the story as recorded is an authentic report given by the children or an adult invention. His study of accounts of children and servants fleeing from their masters led Charles Oman to conclude that, quote, there is clearly some mystery behind it all, the story of the green children, that is, some story of drugging and kidnapping. Jeffrey Jerome Cohen offers a different kind of historical explanation, 
arguing that the story is an oblique account of the racial difference between the contemporary English and the indigenous Britons. Scholars such as Charles Oman note that one element of the children's account, the entry into a different reality by way of a cave, seems to have been quite popular. Gerald of Wales tells a similar story of a boy who, after escaping his master, encountered two pygmies who led him through an underground passage into a beautiful land with fields and rivers, but not lit by the full light of the sun. Martin Walsh considers the references to St. Martin to be significant and sees the story of the green children as evidence that the Feast of Martinmas has its origins in an English aboriginal past of which the children's story forms the lowest stratum. A contributor to Notes and Queries in 1900 suggested a Celtic connection. Green spirits are sinless in Celtic literature and tradition. It may be more than a coincidence that the green girl marries a man of King's Lynn. Here the original Celtic word would be lein, L-E-I-N, or lean, which means evil. In effect, the pure fairy marries a sinful child of earth. In a modern development of the tale, the green children are associated with the babes in the wood, who were left by their wicked uncle to die. In this version, the children's green coloration is explained by their having been poisoned with arsenic. Fleeing from the wood in which they were abandoned, possibly nearby Thetford Forest, the children fell into the pits at Woolpit, where they were discovered. Local author and folk singer Bob Roberts states that in his 1978 book, A Slice of Suffolk, that, quote, I was told there are still people in Woolpit who are descended from the green children, but nobody would tell me who they were, unquote. Other commentators have suggested that the children may have been aliens, mm-hmm, or inhabitants of a world beneath the earth. Okay. Look up the hollow earth hypothesis. In a 1996 article published in the magazine Analog, astronomer Duncan Lunan hypothesized that the children were accidentally transported to Woolpit from their home planet as a result of a matter transmitter malfunction. Sure, that explains it. Lunan suggests that the planet from which the children were expelled may be trapped in synchronous orbit around its sun presenting the conditions for life only in a narrow twilight zone between a fiercely hot surface and a frozen dark inside. He explains the children's green coloration as a side effect of consuming the genetically modified alien plants eaten by the planet's inhabitants. Lunan was not the first to state that the green children may have been extraterrestrials. Robert Burton suggested in his 1621, The Anatomy of Melancholy, that the green children, quote, fell from heaven, unquote, an idea that seems to have been picked up by Francis Godwin, historian and bishop of Hereford, in his speculative fiction, The Man in the Moon, published posthumously in 1638. Many Flemish immigrants arrived in eastern England during the 12th century, and they were persecuted after Henry II became king in 1154, 
A large number of them were killed near Bury St. Edmunds in 1173 at the Battle of Fornham, fought between Henry II and Robert de Beaumont, 3rd Earl of Leicester. Paul Harris has suggested that the Green children's Flemish parents perished during a period of civil strife and that the children may have come from the village of Fornham St. Martin, slightly to the north of Bury St. Edmund, where a settlement of Flemish Fullers existed at that time. They may have fled and ultimately wandered to Woolpit, disoriented, bewildered, and dressed in unfamiliar Flemish clothes. The children would have presented a very strange spectacle to the Woolpit villagers. The children's color could be explained by green sickness, the result of a dietary deficiency. Brian Houghton considers Harris's explanation to be plausible and the one most widely accepted, although not without its difficulties. For instance, he suggests that it is unlikely that an educated local man like Richard de Cone would not have recognized the language spoken by the children as being Flemish. Historian Derek Brewer's explanation is even more prosaic. He said, the likely core of the matter is that these very small children, herding or following flocks, strayed from their forest village, spoke little, and, in modern terms, did not know their own home address. They were probably suffering from chlorosis, a deficiency disease which gives the skin a greenish tint, hence the term green sickness. With a better diet, it disappears. I don't know what to think about the green children. I've heard this story for years. But when you start politicizing everything, then the mystery kind of goes hollow, as far as I'm concerned. Have you ever heard of the Dropa Stones? Or perhaps the Stone Library of China? I've heard it called several different things. The Dropa Stones which are otherwise known as the Dezopa stones, Dropas stones, or Dropka stones, are said by some ufologists and pseudo-archaeologists to be a series of at least 716 circular stone disks dating back 12,000 years on which tiny hieroglyph-like markings may be found. Each disc is claimed to measure up to one foot in diameter and carry two grooves originating from a hole in their center in the forms of a double spiral. The hieroglyph-like markings are said to be found in these grooves. No record has been found of the stones being displayed in any of the world's museums and their current whereabouts are unknown. In 1962, Sum Omnui was reported to have concluded that the grooves on the disc were actually very tiny hieroglyphs, none of which were of a pattern that had been seen before and which can only be seen with the use of a magnifying glass. He announced that he had deciphered them into a story that told of a spacecraft that crash-landed in the area of the cave in the Bayanhar Mountains, B-A-Y-A-N-H-A-R Mountains, and this was in China and the ship contained the Dropa people who could not fix it and therefore had to adapt to Earth. Further, his research claims that the Dropa people were hunted down and killed by the local Han Chinese for a period. 
Sum Omnui noted specifically that one glyph apparently said that Dropa came down from the clouds with their aircraft. Our men, women, and children hid in the caves ten times before sunrise. When at last we understood the sign language of the Dropas, we realized that the newcomers had peaceful intentions. Sum Omnui is said to have published his findings in 1962 in a professional journal and was subsequently ridiculed and met with disbelief. Shortly afterward, he is said to have gone to Japan in a self-imposed exile, where he died not long after he completed the manuscripts of his work. Russian researchers jumped in and requested the disk for studying, and allegedly several were shipped to Moscow. Once there, it is said they were scraped for loose particles and put through a chemical analysis which revealed that they contained large amounts of cobalt and other metallic substances. As recorded in the Soviet magazine Sputnik, Dr. Vacheslav Sayez describes an experiment where the discs were supposedly placed on a special turntable, whereby they were shown to vibrate or hum in an unusual rhythm as though an electric charge was passing through them. Supposedly, Ernst Wegerer, or Wegener, was an Australian engineer who in 1974 visited the Banpo Museum at Shan, Shanxi Province, where he saw two of the Dropa stones. It is said that when he inquired about the disc, the manager could tell him nothing, but permitted him to take one in his hand and photograph them up close. He claims that in his photographs, the hieroglyphs cannot be seen as they have been hidden by the flash from the camera and have also deteriorated. By 1994, the discs and the manager had disappeared from the museum. A reference to the Dropa and the Dropa Stones is found in the July 1962 edition of the German vegetarian magazine Das Vegetarische Universum. They are mentioned in the 1980 book Sun Gods in Exile by a man named David A. Gammon. This book was written as if it were a documentary of a 1947 expedition with the scientist Carol Robin Evans. It follows his supposed travels into the secluded region of the Bayankara Ula mountain range where he finds dwarvish people called the Dropa. According to his book, the Dropa population consisted of a few hundred members, all of which were approximately four feet tall. Robin Evans allegedly lived among the Dropa for half a year, and during that time he learned their language and history, and also impregnated one of the Dropa women. Told they had crashed there long ago, and that their ancestor had come from a planet in the Sirius constellation. Gammon later revealed in the British publication The Fortean Times that his book was his favorite hoax and was also a satire. It has been claimed that Sum Omnui is not a real Chinese name. There's no mention of him in China outside his connection to the Dropa Stones. According to Dropa enthusiast Hartwig Hausdorff, Sum Omnui is a former Japanese name but adapted to Chinese language. The stone discs were supposedly stored in various museums across China. None of these museums have any records or traces of Dropa stones ever being there. According to the Gould-Parkinson system of transliteration, Dropka is Tibetan 
for solitude or inhabitant of pasture lands. It is said to be the name of a tribe of Tibetan nomadic herders on the eastern Tibetan plateau. With Wegerer's photos lacking concrete evidence of the hieroglyphs, they display similarity to Bi discs. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's B-I with a diacritical mark over the eye. Bi are round jade discs with holes in their centers. When buried in the earth, the minerals change them to be multicolored. Bi have been dated to 3000 BCE and were common in what is now Shanxi. Other Bi are decorated with parallel grooves and other markings. Well, that's the end of the stories for this week. Hope you enjoyed them. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a great week. Goodbye. Goodbye.